This week's episode contains binaural recordings. Listen with headphones if you can. Sounds curious. Hey there, welcome back to the Sounds Curious podcast. We have missed you, our adventurous listeners. In the month of July in 2016, we have been on the road recording, presenting, doing lots and lots of stuff, and we are really excited to bring it all back to you. We're working hard to get a couple of extra episodes out in the near future to make up for our lack of episodes so far in July, but it has been well worth it with recent trips to Newfoundland, St. John, the city of St. John in Canada, which for those of you who don't know is a rockin' little harbor town. very very edge very very eastern edge of North America in fact we could look up and see Signal Hill where the first transatlantic radio signal was received so a great city for sound and we were there for an event associated with the Sound Symposium. Now the Sound Symposium in St. John's has been going on for a really long time and it is an amazing event for listeners everywhere to consider making a pilgrimage to St. John's and experiencing the Sound Symposium. We didn't get to stay as long as we would like. There were so many great events happening in and around the city and the opening of today's episode is one of those events. It is a piece that happens every day in the harbor. And again, St. John's is a very hilly city situated on a harbor. So sloping down to a harbor that is a very active harbor.
If you've never heard a harbor full of boats play music together, I highly recommend it. And it's a good example of the kind of fun, experimental, sound outside the box thinking that governs this sound symposium. What you heard at the opening was a field recording that I made on Sunday, July 10th of the Harbor Symphony, which takes place every day in the Sound Symposium down in the Harbor of St. John's in this little harbor city at the very edge of North America. And it happens again this uh, this year, 2016, was the 18th Sound Symposium. So this has been going on for a good long time. We were there uh, also in conjunction with a colloquium that happened in conjunction with the Sound Symposium. So scholars from all over the world who came to an event called Improvisation as Intercultural Contact and Dialogue. That's a, a big long title, but essentially it was a gathering of scholars and practitioners from all over the place who came to give three days of research presentations, workshops, performances, lots of interactivity, lots of sharing and exchanging and arguing and contending about issues in improvisation and also the way in which we conduct intercultural contact and dialogue. What it says about us, how do we take it apart and how might improvisation offer an interesting new model in a world that needs a lot less violence and a lot more dialogue? Is it possible that improvisation might provide a useful model and that improvisers of all stripes and all traditions and all disciplines might have something to say about that? So it was an incredible event and we're going to go into quite a bit of detail with it when we talk with the organizer of the colloquium, Ellen Waterman. She is a professor at the Memorial University of Newfoundland in St. John's and she is someone uh, who also came out of a graduate program at UCSD in the 1990s uh, as yours truly did which was a very energetic time, certainly, for that department. And she strove to make connections across disciplines and really listen deeply to the voices that didn't always get listened to. So she's always had a reputation, in my circle anyway, as someone who speaks very consideredly about very important things. So we're really excited to feature an interview with her that we did in St. John's uh, just a couple days after the colloquium finished up and just a day or so into the sound symposium. So you're going to be hearing my own field recordings throughout this episode and some examples of music that's that has been presented in the past. And we're going to talk, listen deeply, and be generally dialogue about issues surrounding improvisation, culture, contact, and yeah, what does it mean to have 
an intercultural dialogue. What is intercultural? So stay tuned. This is going to get really interesting. just uh, participated, both of us, in a, the Improvisation as Intercultural Contact and Dialogue Colloquium, uh, which is a project of the International Institute for Critical Studies and Improvisation, or ICE. ICE. ICE, yes. <laughs> so ICE is a, a research project funded by a, a Social Science and Humanities Research Council Partnership Grant, and it's a distributed institute across five Canadian universities with participation by the Center for Black Studies at UC Santa Barbara and the Musigetti's Foundation, which is an arts and social activism foundation in Ontario, a private wow, foundation. Wow, fantastic. Yeah. yeah, so it's Memorial University, McGill University, the University of Guelph, University of Regina, and the University of British Columbia. And all of us are building on work done in, under a previous seven-year grads. So we've had a big stretch of time to do this work building the field of critical studies and improvisation. Uh, and what do we mean by that? Our impulse is initially came from looking at 60s and post-1960s forms of uh, creative improvisation, free jazz, sure, the, the free improvisation, studio, yeah, yeah. Right. all those guys. Yeah. Looking at these kinds of uh, fairly egalitarian forms and, and open voice forms of improvisation um, as a social model, asking ourselves the question, what would happen if ethics of responsiveness, deep listening, um, uh, non-hierarchical structures of interaction c that we found in some of those musics, what would happen if those were mapped into broader social arenas? Sure, politics, which has come up several times, you know, small p and large P politics, you know, mm -hmm. what might it mean if these things were extended out into the culture from this kind of cauldron of interaction and social, uh, really, I mean, very dynamic sociality, yeah. I would say, yeah. that we find in improvisation. I mean, uh, so some of our, uh, the initial um, inspirations, especially for the guy that invented the project, Ajay Hebley. So he's, a, he's a, an English professor at the University of Guelph and also the artistic director of the Guelph Jazz Festival, a small, adventurous, kind of avant-garde jazz and festival. very well known as an yeah. editor and author. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, so this is a festival that, that for many years had a colloquium attached to it, much like the one that we've just done here in partnership with the festival. Gotcha. So, us doing the colloquium on improvisation as intercultural contact and dialogue in partnership with the Sound Symposium Festival, our St. John's Newfoundland partner, mm -hmm. uh, and having a combination of presentations by academics and presentations by artists just talking about their work or demonstrating uh, their ideas through their work Absolutely. is part of that model. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and for sure, I mean, the way that these you know, for those of you listening at home, I will have talked about a little bit of this in the introduction to this week's episode. 
um, you know, the way in which we would spend an hour interacting artistically with each other really intensely, sometimes not even knowing each other for more than two seconds when mm -hmm. that was happening. And then we'd sit down and hear an incredibly well-articulated analysis of an interaction that has happened previously. For instance, Jason Staniak's wonderful presentation about many decades of Brazilian music and mm -hmm. um, in the United States and its reception and, and, and its and what it has to say about so many other things. Same thing with many of the other, uh, Deeran's wonderful paper on Browntopia, which uh, we will be interviewing him in upcoming episodes. So it was this wonderful balance between, you know, thinking deeply and pondering deeply and then practicing deeply with one another. Mm. And it's it's kind of an unusual thing, I would say, at an academic conference, but maybe I'm speaking out of turn. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, so we have run conferences uh, with festivals for, in our projects for over 10 years. Uh, so in three to five sites across the country and always with that model in mind, because what we wanted to do partly in our project was to, uh, this is not original, but for us, knowledge is obviously something just generated by academics. Uh, knowledge is generated through the arts, it's generated through activism, it's generated through everyday practices. Uh, so those are, that just kind of frames the work that we do. And, and uh, IC has 30 community partners. Some of them are festivals, some of them are grassroots social organizations. Uh, organizations like Head and Hands in Montreal, which is a drop-in center for youth at risk, mm. or uh, Kids Ability in Guelph, which is a, a center for kids with disabilities, mm -hmm. um, to uh, to really just make their its its ethos is what does the child want to do? Okay, let's make this possible. Right. So we've been running improvisation workshops with those kids now for for ten years. Um, and we learn as much from those kids as we learn from. <laughs> from I've seen those videos thinkers. of the Almi yeah. project and yeah. all of this, so I think yeah. you're right. Yeah. I think you learn. Yeah, I think yeah. we all learn a lot from those things. Yeah. So the part, I guess, of the impulse behind this kind of scholarship, um, and both Deborah Wong and Jason Stanick are, are members of, of IC. They were the keynote speakers of our conference. The impulse behind this kind of, of scholarly activity is to, to take scholarship both in the academy and out of the academy uh, into the realm of the everyday, to learn what we, what, what we have to learn from people who are working in different walks of light, life, to offer what we have as academics and scholars to that. Uh, and as artists, I mean, I'm a, like you, I'm, a, I'm an artist scholar, to really take seriously what artistic practices reveal yes. what kind of knowledge is produced through them. Yes. So that, I guess, is a core hypothesis, is that improvisation, improvisational arts produce knowledge. Absolutely, and it's, it's simple and yet kind of revolutionary in a lot of ways for folks who have a kind of, um, there are some preconceived notions around improvisation and its spontaneity that I think um, many practitioners often challenge. Um, that certainly has come up a lot in my interviews with improvisers. And often it's our own internal dialogue about what we think people perceive about improvisation mm -hmm. and spontaneity and how that reflects on it 
as a discipline or a practice. And you know, here at the show, we're always talking about the discipline, you know, the fact that uh, the, the methodologies that we develop are developed over time with incredible amounts of, of heart, soul, time, energy, and reflection. And, um, and sometimes, the, you know, it's hard to find places where all of those knowledges get to intersect. And I certainly found as a participant in this that it was an opportunity for me to kind of bring out all of those aspects of myself. So at least from my perspective as a participant, it was very successful in that regard. Oh, I'm, I'm glad. Well, for example, we started the conference with a deep, deep listening workshop uh, yes. by Gail Young, who worked with Pauline Oliveros and uh, was one of the early deep listening certificate holders. And I liked the way that she, uh, she really got us going. So she took us through three of Pauline's pieces um, all of which are predicated on her philosophy of deep listening, of, of listening actively to everything, everywhere, all the time. All the time. Which is really just a kind of another way of talking about mindfulness. Right. Or, or awareness or responsibility Presence. to each other. Mm -hmm. and, and that was great because it immediately, instead of a passive audience listening to an authoritative figure speaking, we had all of us put in the same frame of, of working together to listen and working quite yeah. intimately with one another. Absolutely, yeah. and learning each other's names in by singing them yeah. And, yeah. and performing them for each other, which is... Yeah, yeah that was quite interesting to do. It was a wonderful yeah. moment of intercultural yeah. contact, yeah. if you will. I guess so. I mean, I, I do want to sort of uh, pause for a second and, and also say that although there is a, a kind of utopian impulse in improvisation studies, uh, in, in that positive sense of without hope, there's no change, right? Mm -hmm. um, I want to really, I guess, state up front that I think improvisation is most useful as a, uh, for the way that it reveals structures of power, for the ways that uh, it helps us to learn how to be good negotiators with one another, mm. um, the ways that uh, it, it doesn't, ignore the messiness of human interactions. Yeah. So if there's a politics of hope there, it emerges in instances like the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians out yeah, of Chicago here, here. and the free school they've run for 40 years, um, the great music that's been created, the activists, activism around the civil rights movement Absolutely. Uh, that came through there. That, you know, there are these wonderful historical instances. There's also, as we heard in our conference, plenty of instances where improvisation fails, where uh, what you really see is an asymmetry in power dynamics, yes. uh, where uh, the you know there is no ethics of egalitarianism, where right. there's a where celebrity supersedes uh, that model. Absolutely. So, so I don't think improvisation is good inherently. I think it's just a very fascinating arena to look at the, at human relations because it's of its emphasis on continual adaptability and response to, to, to whatever is there at the time. And as you said, all of what one brings to a musical improvisation, just as the ways we improvise in daily life moving mm -hmm. through the world, we bring our baggage to that. We bring our knowledge, yes. our skills, our training, our morals, our subject positions in the world, and the, the kind of change. day we had and what we ate for breakfast and the fight we might have had with our partner the day before or the thing we're worried about next week and 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 all of that becomes a part of the alchemy of this 
dynamic thing that I don't even have a name for. What do you mean? Tell me more about what you mean about alchemy. Like, what you, what's your? How do you use that word? Because like improvisation, like this is one of the issues we've had with improvisation in our in our project with scholars from many many different disciplines: law and medicine and social work and literature and languages, uh, music. I mean, you notice how far down on the list music is. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a spectacularly interdisciplinary project. We spent a lot of time initially just arguing about what we meant by improvisation. Absolutely, <laughs> so. and I think that's lovely. I mean, when you, have to, when you have to somehow like, yeah, sit there and sort of figure out, well, wait, what do we mean by this term? And, right. uh, and, and, and of course, yeah, my, my, we were just discussing on our walk over here, uh, the name of my production collective, which is Improvised Alchemy. And the reason that those two words are put together is because improvised has all of these implications of spontaneity and this, and I like to use the word nimble, that my improvisation requires that I stay nimble at levels I previously thought myself incapable of. Mm -hmm. So it, my adaptability, my responsiveness, my willingness to see my own position in things, um, my willingness to see my own failures, my willingness to see where I'm wrong. Um, improvisation requires that I stay nimble in all of that. So where's the alchemy coming And so for me, the alchemy, which is ostensibly the absolute opposite, it is a very careful, time-consuming, precise, scientistic approach to transformation in which we're supposed to follow ancient rules and practices of combinations to transform that which is base into that which is precious. Mm. And yet, for me, the only true alchemy, you know, the only true alchemy is in the moment. And improvised alchemy works as a concept for me when I think of alchemy as that moment when all of the ingredients come together and the transformation happens and you are no longer who you were mm -hmm. and you can no longer be that person. Because I'm not sure that, I mean, that, that's fascinating. Um, I, I'm not sure that that, that uh, scans for me with how I think about improvisation and the improvisational encounter because although I think we do have these moments that are illuminating or maybe epiphanic, you know, these kind of like, aha, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. wow. Uh, I know certainly I've, uh, I've had the experience of being on stage and playing with a musician uh, and then doing something I never did before, making a sound I never made before, or just having a kind of gut insight about form, mm. the development of form in the moment, something like that. I've had those moments. Um, so it's, I, I think there is transformational potential there, but I, I don't feel like, I don't feel like it's the kind of transformation where you get something completely new. I think you have all the baggage and residue you brought with you are still there, mm -hmm. right? So we're no, it's, it's not a way of, um, it's not transcendence. It's not a way of, 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 of getting beyond the mundane and, and the everyday. I think we're still down in the muck. No, uh, I get in, you, and you know, I think that makes yeah. it sound too precious. Yeah, yeah I think yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah. I think it's, and too yeah. um, lofty, if you will. Um, but I think, yeah, perhaps the fact that I do view my improvised practice as a vehicle for my own 
personal transformation. Mm. So it is something that I do tend to put a lot of value on in mm. myself. But mm. as we know, every improviser is different. Our reasons for doing it are different. The mm. ways in which mm. we do it are different. How we conceptualize it, and that's part of the joy, is just listening to all the different ways that people conceptualize it. Um, and certainly for you, who have studied, practiced, um, taught and learned over such a long period of time, it's it's so fascinating for me to hear about how you think about it now. Oh. Because I'm never going to assume that it's right. how you thought about it then. Then, sure, sure. exactly. Yeah, we, we've known each other a long time, um, although not for, uh, there's been an intervening period of years. So we both went to a music department, UC San Diego, where, which placed a very high value on composition, uh, but which had a kind of really exciting renaissance of improvisation while we were there with the arrival of George Lewis, yes. uh, who not only uh, improvised with us all, but made us think critically about it. He's, yes. he's, a, he's kind of a great model of the scholar artist or the artist scholar. Um, 
and none of us went th there through, I mean, my indoctrination, so let, let me just talk about myself. My, um, my introduction to improvising in that context wasn't based on a genre or a style or a set of rules. Although I would say that the cult of virtuosity that uh, yes. was really thoroughly imbued in that place and time. In every program in yeah, that place. Yeah, was, was always present. So there'd be lots of cooperation, lots of collaborations, but we were all trying to be really shit-hot players at the same time. Um, my own teaching of improvisation was developed in a completely different kind of environment. My first job uh, in the late 1990s was in a cultural studies program in a small town, Peterborough, Ontario, Trent University. I remember that. And um, there was, that was a town that has a great folk music scene and a great underground theater scene but didn't happen to have a kind of avant-garde music scene. Right. Um, so I felt like I needed a niche to play, and I created uh, an experimental music workshop in a shack, basically, a, a little student pub on campus that you could basically do anything with and to. There was a ramshackle piano, and it was just a kind of space that was really accessible. And it needed to be, yeah, that was there to be occupied. Right. So every Wednesday night, there'd just be this drop-in jam session, and it was the era of didgeridoos and djembes and dreadlocks among the students. Welcome, uh, Yes, and uh, lots of um, budding electronics. Drum and bass was huge. So we, we had it all, yeah. and it was really literally anybody who came played. And because you could hear, it was paper-thin walls, so you could hear it through all the student residences, and because it was right where people were living, lots of people came. Oh, sure. And at the time, I had a small child and uh, like a baby and um, was really hired to teach cultural studies, not to be a flutist. Uh, I was not playing at anything like the finesse and level of virtuosity that I had developed in my studies at UCSD. Right. So I, I, at that point, I would have been hard-pressed to play the Stockhouse and the Fernie Ho, the, you know, the kinds of new music that we were that we were assiduously learning and playing. What happened was that I made crappy sounds and I learned how much I had to learn from those crappy sounds. So in this chaotic, loud environment with flutes, um, joining in, using lots of vocalizing, using lots of breath sounds, using mm. taking all the detritus that comes when your embouchure is not in a very good place mm -hmm. for, for, for playing pure flute sounds, uh, and turning all of that to account. Right. So as I was encouraging my students to explore and use the resources they had at hand rather than feel that they couldn't participate unless they already had certain resources, right. I found myself a student of the same practice. A few years later, I had the opportunity to move to the University of Guelph and, and run what the students had started as a 20th century music ensemble. And when I took it over, um, since it was 2002, we renamed it the Contemporary Music Ensemble. I was going to say, thank you. <laughs> and and uh, uh, that CME, later William Parker, just assumed it meant Creative Music Ensemble. So that became the, he That's became brilliant. the name. Yeah, That's he, the, brilliant. Yeah, he was a guest uh, artist who came by to, to work with us for a week or so. And I made that ensemble, which was a credit course, a non-audition. And the program at Guelph is not a, a bachelor of music, it's a liberal arts kind of environment, right. which means that the students came from all over the university and the community. 
and they ranged from you know very very fine classical players right. to trained Incredible jazz players chops to folks who can't read music. Well, to the guy actually that played the Rubenzuela for like four solid years in the ensemble, and it was just whatever people had, that was what they were going to use. That's beautiful. Yeah. So I have to say that um, I learned very very humbly over time that my most effective teaching technique was to put small groups of people together in different rooms and then leave. Get out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> because when, when people are first learning to improvise, they, it, it's really intimidating whether they have musical training or not. Right. Sometimes even more if they have musical training than right. not. Um, not always. But, but they, need to, they need to establish social relations with one another. Trust needs to be built. And there needs to be an opportunity to fail or just to make sounds without there being a judgment so Absolutely. that there is no possibility of failure because no one's judging. Absolutely. Um, so we did, a, we did a lot of that and, and a lot of our projects would involve small groups of people just making a short piece over a semester mm -hmm. or collaborating as a large group to create scores that 30 people could play without sounding completely right. um, chaotic. And, and through those kinds of projects, you learn a lot of lessons are revealed, Very both lessons so. about musical form, tab, rhythm, you know, all those kinds of, it's great music pedagogy, I think, but it's also great social pedagogy. You know, if you have 30 people and you have to, say you have a simple, a simple piece like Jean de Rome's Spectacle. Uh, this is a piece in which you get a set of cards. Each card has a simple instruction on it that has a set of, little parameters. You can play your three cards anytime you like during the piece, but you can only play each card for up to a minute and you can only play it once. Mm. So now absolutely everybody in the group only has three minutes maximum of playing to do and you really have to decide where and when to do that playing. You gotta pick your moments. Yeah, and then, so there's that aspect, but then there's also the, the overall goal of creating a piece as a group that sounds flying yes. as a group. So now, you, now you're dealing not just with musical ideas, but with uh, a social contract, with um, interpretation of instructions, with the, the self in its relation to others, right. uh, with spontaneity, that decision to go, uh, with uh, risk and failure, with bravery, with timidity, all right. of those things are in play in a, in a what is otherwise a very simple organizing structure. That I think those are places that I learned the most about improv improvising is just working yeah. with other people learning to improvise. Well, and one of the reasons that improvisation is such a, I mean, not, not just as a practitioner, but it's something that, and, and you know, I, I take your... Uh, and they're not just yours, you know, but the, the generalized warning against utopian, um, you know, desires being sort of in, in, inflicted on this practice because there is kind of a danger to see these kinds of interactions as in, a, in a kind of, you know, interpret them in a kind of utopian way. And yet, while we've been in, um, while I've been in Canada visiting um, St. John's for the first time, um, you know, there's been a number of shootouts in the United States, and it seems a moment in at least my personal cultural history in which it really does seem that 
these kinds of interactions, these ways in which we can experiment with interacting differently. Um, I personally hate the word tolerance when we talk about it within a social contract because it's like I wouldn't sit in an improvisation and tolerate mm -hmm. what another musician was doing or what another artist was doing. I would not sit and tolerate it and you know that would imply that I was waiting for it to be done and that I had nothing to learn from what it was and what was actually happening in front of me. So I find the themes of this uh, of the conference that happened around the sound symposium here to be particularly relevant right now and I certainly heard a lot over the last few days and um, maybe like to elaborate a little bit more on this because yeah. this is certainly not my area of expertise but um, this is something that seems to come up again and again and it's and it's being drawn for me very starkly against the backdrop of of what I feel my culture going through at this yeah. particular moment. And I don't mean to say mine is the only one. I mean, at the exact mm -hmm. same moment that I was grieving about what was going on in the US, there was also a horrific shootout in Nigeria and there were many, many, many lives lost and it barely made it into the American news. Yeah. So even within just this little moment, there are so many layers. Um, and it sounds like this is exactly where you all are well, yeah, okay, so this is, I think you're right. I think, I think one of the huge issues in humanity, well, this is gonna sound horribly trite because you put it in that way, but, know. but you know, one of the huge issues in humanity <laughs> is, is how we get along together in society with difference, how we negotiate difference, yes. and how we, how we respect one another and, and that, speaks to the huge other broader ethical relations that produce good or bad uh, environmental policies or good or bad immigration policies yes. or that kind of thing. Of course, um, and we're seeing these tensions played out across the, the globe right now. In the conference, I thought one of the useful contributions uh, was made by, the, by three presenters who in different ways um, gave us some language to think about these larger issues. So Dylan Robinson, mm -hmm. who is a, a Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Studies at Queen's University in Kingston, he's a guy that looks at uh, Indigenous politics in relation to artistic practice. Yes. And a lot of his work has actually not been on improvisation. I invited him because of, of his work in indigeneity. Um, but in the realm of classical music. Mm -hmm. uh, so either non-Indigenous classical musicians who are creating pieces on Indigenous themes or Indigenous musicians who are increasingly making their creative voices heard in this artistic realm. The, what he came and talked to us about was a concept he called hungry settler listening. And I thought it was really a great provocation because it, it. Yeah, it speaks to our, our to a normative assumption of Western notion that you can you can know and understand and therefore consume and therefore own. Yes, that it is other. there and available for us to consume mm -hmm. automatically. Yeah, and that we ought to have you know access to those knowledges. Um, 
And he spoke about that in relation to, for example, the history of collecting uh, ethnographic collections of indigenous uh, bodies of song that had, in the say the late 19th, early 20th century, that had a kind of double-edged quality to them. On the one hand, sometimes those songs were transmitted or given to by elders to the recordists, to the ethnographers, because they were aware of those bodies of work being endangered. Yes. Um, but on the other hand, they were sequestered in uh, museums and in, yes. in a, you know archives where indigenous people had no access to Power them. Power centers for... Yeah. And many of those uh, ceremonial songs were never meant to be heard outside of a very particular context. Absolutely. So now the horse is out of the barn, what do you do with it? What does a young indigenous person now dis rediscovering some of those traditions through those archives, how does that person deal with that material? What does ownership mean? What, who has authority? Absolutely. Um, how, what, how has that material mutated? Um, and you know, what would it really mean for non-Indigenous people to accept the possibility that there could just be a refusal, that we ought not to touch certain things or, mm -hmm. or have there certain are, things? That there are places we can't go. Yeah. And this was, was all played out against the backdrop of Canada's recent Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which wrapped up in 2015, a countrywide examination of the residential schools system in Canada, something that happened uh, for about 140 years and lasted into the 1980s. Yes. And this, which at its worst, it was a, it was a, a system of assimilation with the assumption that children, native children should be brought up out of their communities and uh, schooled in English in these residential schools. Civilized. Yeah, so there was enormous word. loss of culture, of language, yes. uh, families broken up, um, and, and in many cases, histories of abuse in the schools. Devastating you know. histories of yeah. abuse. But the way that the, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation, one of the things that Indigenous scholars are talking about out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is that the way it was set up, was a process of witnessing where people would tell their stories of trauma, which sometimes had sort of healing effects or was very good communications, but there was much more engagement by indigenous people than non-indigenous people in this whole process. Mm. Uh, and it, as David Garneau has said, it really put the witness in the position of having to relive that, that experience and of displaying that trauma for settler consumption all over again, yes, right? So that exactly. it's really, really hard to get away from the, you know, specularism and the, and this kind of uh, politics of consumption from our particular privileged Absolutely. subject positions, right? So the so he really made us right at the beginning of the conference challenge. First us paper, to, it was great. Yeah, yeah, he he really challenged us to to. To think carefully about <laughs> about our the politics of listening, which I, I thought was great. Um, Deborah Wong uh, spoke about strategies for intercultural contact and dialogue, and she spoke about things like pacts, alliances, uh, but also 
so Pax alliances, co collaborations among people, coalitions, coalitions and, yeah. that 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 might not be permanent, that might not uh, access the, uh, you know, encompass all the concerns of the people right. involved, but might be temporary alliances. I, she made me really think of Donna Haraway's early work Very on that. Very much so. Strategic yeah. alliances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to, to gain a particular end, and then, mm -hmm. you know, that point of conjuncture would be done, and people go back to their own, their own other places. But how that happens responsibly, and, uh, and she was doing this in the realm of intercultural um, music making and taiko drumming. And one of the interesting questions that came up as a result of that paper was the was the sharpness of the language that she had yes, used. Yes, the militaristic bend uh -huh. of the language. Uh -huh. And I, I thought that was quite interesting because I, I liked it. I liked the I liked that it didn't let us off the hook. It wasn't warm and fuzzy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was this sense of, yes. of people, what do you do when you feel embattled? How do you communicate with other people in a way that might be strategic and temporary, uh, but also fruitful and uh, um, productive of good relations uh, and yeah yeah and she really I mean she brought up one aspect that I that I've that I'm still thinking about and I'm sure we'll ponder for a while which was um, ways in which we can distance we can build layers of distance in in our experiences so she was she in this particular moment was talking about um, you know when we're attempting to build a kind of coalition that we can also sort of build distancing into it. She was talking about, um, for instance, arranging Hawaiian melodies being played, you know, or uh, melee rhythms being played on an African drum by, you know, uh, the ways in which instruments and musicians can engage sort of obliquely and create kind of strategies that make room for engagement without ownership. Yeah. Very yeah, she was talking ownership. specifically about uh, Kenny Endo, who's a, a, a Japanese American who we will uh, taiko be dealing player. with on the show very soon because that was just such an incredible topic mm. that I must dig into it more. Mm. Anyway, it was I, I just thought so there we had a certain set of of ideas that that we could use this, you know, what's what is listening responsibly, what what is really um uh what if we don't get reconciliation? What if we have to accept refusal or difference, or yeah. you know, uh, and 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 live with that and make room for it peaceably? Uh, what? How do we make coalitions, pacts, alliances to responsibly interact with one another artistically? And what can we learn about that in a wider social frame? And then, as you mentioned, Jason Staniak's um, kind of encapsulation of fifteen years of work on mm -hmm. on intercultural. Musicking, particularly in the context of Brazil and Bossa Nova, uh, he came up with the the theorization of um, not just articulations between cultures, right. but but maybe more something about uh, layerings of meaning and and overlaps and and waves of waves. connections. Yeah, the so waves. So something something sort of dynamic that that again isn't neat doesn't suggest right. that you know doesn't let anybody off the hook of the of the of the careful processes of negotiation that go into 
uh, creating the work of art or the local politics. Right. Or the, yeah. or the reception yeah. of the work of art across these cultures mm -hmm. and, and yep. politics. And yeah, the wave was such a wonderful, because of course it was not just a song, a wonderful example from the time that he was talking about, this, this track called The Wave, um, but also the fact that waves can happen simultaneously, they can move in different directions, and yet they are of the same substance. Mm -hmm. You know, we, uh, sound waves can cancel each other out or augment one another. They mm -hmm. can interfere with one another or, you know, uh, each one can go further if they happen to mesh. And so it was, a, it was a great way of kind of grounding that kind of back into the, you know, we get very heady with these topics immediately because we're dealing with such enormity and yet sort of breaking it down into these very simple metaphors for me I've found really really helpful because it gives me something to kind of grasp in the the flow and flux of all of these different points of view and and certainly for me one of the most interesting was as you mentioned we had a lawyer who also happens to be highly trained in music, and she was talking about peacemaking. This was Linda Ippolito. Thank you. And Linda was phenomenal and incredibly articulate. And, and coming from law allowed me to hear some of the things about improvisation that maybe I didn't quite Put together before because mm. when you're speaking about peacemaking in such a concrete way where there are bodies in the room suddenly that as a metaphor for improvisation became so much richer for me because it was again bodies it was putting the bodies mm. back into the room the bodies in encounter um you know what we've been saying in this interview so far just you know all of the baggage that we bring with us and you know intentionality and history and um and all manner of levels of technique and aesthetic to think about the bodies again and mm -hmm. those bodies in contact mm -hmm. and what each of those bodies wants out of an exchange and how they're probably not going to be the same you know just like what two musicians want in an improvisation may not be the same what a musician and a dancer what a musician and a technologist or a you know any artists improvising together are never going to have the same agenda um and so yeah it is it is really interesting to think of that in in a room where people are negotiating contracts and law because i see those things as being mm -hmm. so fundamentally different mm -hmm. and yet they're not mm -hmm. no i don't think they are yeah so yeah. i was really yeah lovingly surprised by that and I thought that was spectacular. There's really great work done on improvisation in the law by uh, Sarah Ramshaw uh, who's a UK-based lawyer and legal scholar who works, um, has, has had a large project about translating law in, in, into improvisation and vice versa. Wow. Um, uh, partly at uh, the uh, Sonic Arts uh, Center at at, at University of Queen's University in Belfast with a musician called Paul Stapleton. And I attended a great conference they put on last year where they had a room full of lawyers, judges, and social workers related who all work in the very fraught world of child and family law. That is very fraught. Uh, and a room full of improvisers. And they were, we were hearing presentations from each other and then going, the lawyers were doing a kind of cobra-like game. They called it Hydra because they had many more kind of um, heads to it. Wow. Uh, 
an improvisational game that was designed to get people to switch positions, so courtroom lawyers to switch positions and take each other's, take the different point of view on a dime, right? So using some improvisational strategies of response and adaptation uh, and empathy uh, to kind of build a sense of how can you see the other side when you're arguing a particular case. And then the musicians similarly were challenged to, um, to, to articulate the, the strategies that we use to, to build and maintain the social contract. And the thing that struck me most, well, two things struck me. One was that the stakes were, the everyday stakes were so high for people working in the arena of child and family protection. Absolutely where the decision to leave a child with a family or remove the child could have life or death consequences. And it wasn't always obvious, well, it was never obvious what to do, right? Yeah. Um, and then on the other hand, for musical improvisers, you know, our day-to-day -day risk is uh, artistic failure, uh, which can, you know, can have profound economic circumstances, sure. or pr pr consequences for people, but I guess, but it's not quite the same life or death kind of thing. No. Um, and the other thing that, that really struck me was that when the 30 or so musicians got together, I think I'm exaggerating, there were 18 of us, uh, to improvise for a morning, um, there were moments when people deliberately broke the, the social contract as an artistic choice you know, played super loud over everybody for an extended period of time and silenced voices or that kind of thing, or, you know, hogged the space or, or uh, would drop down and didn't communicate, uh, you know, like the, mm -hmm. all the things yeah. that can happen in improvisational situations. And I was struck by the, the way that the strategies that we say we live by only work if you use them. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> if you use them responsibly. Absolutely. And if you don't, right, exactly. And if you, and, and in, in a sense, in that particular situation, they can often speak volumes <laughs> about us mm -hmm. as musicians and, and as people, often more so than um, what we say, certainly. Um, you know, how we represent ourselves in in the society may not always be the way that we behave. And I think sometimes in improvisational settings, we get to confront that, you know, the ways in which the way we think we're interacting mm. with others may not necessarily be the way that we are. Um, and I've certainly, I've certainly done that myself. No, sure. Yeah, I, I think Judith, Judith Butler is right when she talks about um, the scene of constraint, you know, the performance of subjectivity always occurs within the constraints of the social setting and the unwritten or written rules of that setting, uh, who or what we can be at any given moment is not just a free choice. It's something that we're always negotiating and, and in, with varying degrees of risk. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're gonna leave it there. Thanks again to Dr. Ellen Waterman for that great interview. Ending on Judith Butler. Only a true pro can land on Judith Butler and stick the landing. Once again, our thanks to all the people at the Colloquium, Improvisation as Intercultural Contact and Dialogue. Find links to all the people we mentioned in that conversation, all the musical examples we featured today, and all the field recordings from St. John, Newfoundland, Labrador, Canada, over at BansheeMedia.com. We'll catch you soon for your next episode of Sounds Curious. In the meantime, take care.
Thank <laughs> you.